everybody. We're so glad you're back with us at Your Teen with Sue and Steph. I'm Sue. And I'm Steph, and we are the co-founders and owners of Your Teen Media, the resource for parenting tweens and teens. And today, we're talking to Dr. Michael Greenberg, an expert on obsessive-compulsive disorder, and by the way, my son-in-law. Michael will tell us how to best support and understand the experiences of those living with OCD. And, you know, aside from having the the sheer pleasure of talking to my son-in-law about what he specializes in, this whole thing began with a teenage writer who wrote for your teen, who checked out our website and said the image on an article we had about OCD was, she didn't say it, but she has OCD and she found it offensive. And so the image on the article, what I always thought was OCD, like lining up pencils, right? Like meticulously lining up pencils. And as it turns out, it's not really, it might be one manifestation of OCD, but somehow it became what we all think of as OCD. And so I reached out to my son-in-law and said, would you want to be a guest so that we can really talk about what is at the heart of this disorder? I want to thank this teenage writer because it took us down a path that I think we're all going to learn so much about. I don't know. How'd you feel about it, Steph? I think that it was, I had something in my mind about what OCD was and there's trying to figure out what's quote normal or typical. And that's what I thought. I thought it was like simply defined as repetitive behavior and something you had to do to kind of like get order in your world. It really made me understand, I would say what it is and also what it isn't. And I think that's super interesting because, you know, and obviously our guests will hear Michael talking about like, you know, often being misdiagnosed. One of the other things that as I was looking into and reading Michael's articles in particular, we make fun of it. It's like one of Mm -hmm. those disorders that we say to somebody who is doing something repetitive or kind of perseverating on something, like we might joke and say that that's so OCD and I've done it. And after reading about what it is, it's, it's so debilitating and serious. And I want to take that out of what I think is funny in the world because it's, it's not funny. It's so complex is what I realized after we had our conversation with Michael. Yeah, I, so I said, I said to Michael, it's so simple and so complex. Like I felt like on the one hand, it seems like something so on our own radars, like we all experience some of the parts of OCD, just not enough to have it be debilitating and to fall into a disorder, right? Like, so that's why it feels so simple to me. But on the other hand, the treatment also has something that I can't quite wrap my head around that feels so complicated. I loved when Michael was talking about treating a client or a patient and the person has, say, it's a fear of snakes or something, you know, something that is that they're perseverating on, right? They're going on a hike and, oh my God, what if I see a snake? And, you know, and that, that thought is so debilitating. And the way, the way he approached that, this idea of saying to the client, well, do you want to get near that? Do you, like, that was so, there was something so empowering to me of putting that back on the patient and the client that it doesn't, you know, do you have to do it? Or is it, I don't know. There was something about the con, the control of this disease that I felt like, wow, that is so interesting that now, now I've put that back on the client in a way that must feel very empowering as a disease um, that probably renders you feeling very powerless. So there was something about that that was like really um, appealing to me, thinking like, 
oh, wow, like that just put it back in that person's hands in a way that maybe they have felt has been out of control. And now they can control that. I don't know if I'm articulating that well. I use the word perseverating all the time about myself. And I think clinically they say ruminations. And I don't know if they're identical or not. But as he was talking about ruminations and not being able to like let go of these thoughts that keep entering your mind and even actions. So I think there's both the actions and the, and the ruminations, you know, I like, I do have some of those like closing all the doors when other people, I don't know how people go to bed and leave like the cabinet doors open. Like that to me feels funny, but it doesn't interfere with my life. So it is not OCD and diagnosable. But one of the things that I really cherished in what Michael said was like this kind of gentler approach than maybe others are using, which is when you have these ruminations, like for example, Michael will talk about like people who can't open, touch a doorknob without having like a glove on or something on because they think they're going to, it's, it's so contaminated that they can't get themselves to do it. And I think in traditional methodology, you would do it as your thoughts were, as, as you were having ruminating thoughts, which seems so painful, right? Like yeah. while your, your mind is telling you that this is so dangerous, you're going to keep doing it because you're going to desensitize yourself And I just loved Michael's whole softer approach of like working on the ruminations, neutralizing the ruminations so that when you do finally touch the door, you aren't like having a panic attack on top of that, right? Yeah, it it felt so accessible. It felt the the, um, solutions felt accessible. I think that maybe that's the word I was looking for, that those are available to me in a way I thought I couldn't do before. Yeah, and, and so one of the things I thought at the end of it is, man... I mean, I know I call it perseverating, but when I can't fall asleep or I wake up in the middle of the night, I, that's all that's happening to me are thoughts racing through my head. And if I thought if Michael can help people with OCD neutralize thoughts, I want him to get into sleep. <laughs> yes, yes. <laughs> like if, I mean, I, you know, I'll let you know if I can get him to help me with that, but I don't know. There seems something powerful about Eve. Well, I, I know I laughed, but I really mean it literally. I've been, I have been perseverating on the thought of how his, the way he modifies his treatment of patients with OCD could potentially expand to help all of us. So we'll see where that takes us. But in the meantime, I know it was like, it was an eye opener of a, of a discussion and I am crazy about my son-in-law, so that was an added bonus. But I hope all of you appreciate and learn something from Dr. Michael Greenberg. We can't wait for you to join us. Are you tired of seeing your teen or young adult struggle on a path that clearly isn't the right fit? Is your teenager confused about which direction to take after high school? The future of work is changing rapidly, and our kids need to know all of the options available after high school so they're empowered to make the choice that is best for them. In each episode, we explore the latest trends that are shaping the opportunities of today and tomorrow. I'm your host, Betsy Jewell, And this is the High School Hamster Wheel Podcast. Coming up on 5-Minute News, I'm Anthony Davis. 
you might think it's partisan because maybe it's critical of one side or the other, but it's not, it's just the truth. And I think that's also something that's kind of unusual for Americans listening to the radio or to podcasts because the news landscape in the States has been so partisan for so many decades. So 5-Minute News is verified, truthful, independent, unbiased and essential world news daily. Dr. Michael Greenberg is a licensed clinical psychologist specializing in cognitive behavioral therapy, also known as CBT, for OCD, as well as the director of OCD Associates, a practice specializing in rumination-focused ERP. His mission is to make OCD treatment as precise and effective as possible and to create resources that anyone can use to help themselves or the people in their lives. Michael, thank you so much for being here with us. My impression of OCD comes from media portrayal, which I know is terrible, but it really is what I understand it to be, like pencils precisely aligned. And I remember watching the show Girls, where Hannah, who's played by Lena Dunham, has this counting in eights, I think, and does some weird thing with pushing Q-tips into her ears. So I guess my question is, is that are any of those accurate portrayals of OCD? I think that the issue is not that they're inaccurate, but that they're a very limited portrayal of OCD. So there could be somebody with OCD who does have a presentation like that. In fact, any random ritual could be something that somebody with OCD has to do in response to an intrusive thought. The issue is more that there are a million other types of OCD that people don't recognize as such and that are a large preponderance of of cases. So for example... A very common presentation of OCD would be someone who is scared that they they have a thought of hurting someone and they're scared that they'll act on it. And their compulsion is to sit there trying to figure out if they could hurt that person. And their symptoms might, their physical symptoms might look like avoiding being around a knife or avoiding being in the same room as the person. And so it's not that the portrayals we see, some portrayals are incorrect. Like the idea that OCD is always about symmetry or needing things to be in, in very precise order is really a misrepresentation of what OCD typically looks like. But in terms of random rituals, that's not wrong. It's just a minority of cases. There are so many other things that OCD looks like. You could have somebody who has contamination concerns and they have to keep one thing from contaminating another or keep track of contamination. And you could have somebody who is sitting there trying to figure out if they're going to hurt someone. You could have somebody who's scared that they're schizophrenic and is sitting there ruminating about that. You could have somebody who's obsessed with whether they're gay. That's a a great lens to start looking at what is a complicated diagnosis. I think one of the biggest concerns that people have when people have a limited idea of, of what OCD looks like is that things will not be diagnosed correctly. So I've had patients, for example, who have been hospitalized because the person in the ER didn't understand that they were looking at OCD. So if a person came into the ER and said, I'm terrified that I'm going to kill myself. Somebody who doesn't know what OCD is might... There could be somebody who's terrified they're going to kill themselves because there's a real concern there. But somebody who says, no, I don't want to kill myself. I, 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 it's the last thing I would want to do. That's completely terrifying to me. That is somebody who sounds like they have OCD, not like somebody who's actually going to hurt themselves. Or similarly, somebody who says, I'm terrified of the prospect of hurting someone. So I go to tremendous lengths to avoid doing so. If somebody doesn't know that they're listening to OCD, they might think that they're with somebody who's actually a danger to others. That's why it's important to sort of 
broaden people's understanding of what OCT can look like. And also just to get the right treatment. That's also true. Mm -hmm. So Michael, you talk about the core fear of someone with OCD, the fear of making a mistake that they can't take back. And then they're forcing them to live in this core fear state forever. Are there common core fears? Most of the time, the core fear is something related to attachment. So you can sort of look look underneath all the symptoms that a person has, and usually they all flow back to some concerns around losing attachment or being abandoned or being completely alone or a pariah, something related to being separated from others. That's not always the case, and getting into that is probably beyond the scope of the podcast, but generally speaking, there's a concern around, around attachment to others. Can you distill that a little bit? Because I'm not quite understanding. Sure. So I'll answer that question in two ways. So first of all, even though we're saying that a concern about losing attachment to other people is present in every case, every individual's version of that looks different. For example, for one person that might be feeling like a social pariah or feeling like, um, let's say there's somebody who grows up feeling like they are left out of their family, right? And then they go to school where that dynamic is repeated with peers. So that person might, that person's OCD might be associated with a fear of being a social pariah or completely excluded like that. Whereas for somebody else, or let's say they have a parent who is borderline, and when that parent gets angry, it's like the love disappears. That experience of of having love just removed and feeling like you've been dropped emotionally, that person's OCD might be organized around preventing that experience. So both of those are examples of fears related to loss of attachment. But what that looks like is very different for the individual person based on how they experienced being without attachment. Listening to it, I'm thinking, well, you know, I have some of that. Like I have fear of not having an attachment to somebody that uh, I had a crisis with. So what takes it from like on this continuum of like livable to OCD? So I think notably, we're not saying that you're correct. I agree with you that everybody has underneath it all this existential fear of being completely alone. And I don't think that that's specific to OCD. So we're not saying that having that fear causes OCD. We're saying that this is a helpful organizing principle in trying to understand why a person's symptoms are the way they are. So we're not saying a core fear causes OCD. We're saying that when we're trying to make sense of a person's symptoms and trying to understand how these things are connected and like the coherency among them, that it's helpful to think about how all of these things flow back to attachment. So it's a little bit like peeling the layers away once the person's in front of you to figure out what the underlying... Correct. That's correct. But we're not saying that only people with OCD have that concern. I think you're correct that we all do on some level. What I think is the case for people with OCD is that there's usually some factor that sensitize them to the possibility of losing attachment. And that could be any variety of things, whether that's somebody being sick and being afraid of their dying, whether it's an actual loss, whether it's having only one parent and therefore feeling like much more vulnerable than somebody who has like a wealth of attachments, whether that's having a parent who's emotionally volatile. So there's usually some factor that sets the stage for this person to be very concerned about losing attachment. Is it difficult to identify what that core fear is? I think if you ask the right questions, it's actually not. It's not like a identify. Also, I, I should emphasize that I don't want to overemphasize the core fear. So even though um, it's one of the main articles on the website, and it was sort of a, it's, it's an important principle in organizing how we think about OCD, it's not like the be-all end-all of conceptualizing a case. 
So I don't want to overemphasize it. It's just one piece of a, of a bigger puzzle of what's going on emotionally, which has a lot of other parts. But in terms of identifying what the core fear is, you know, it's not usually that difficult. It's basically what we call in cognitive therapy, a downward arrow technique. It's basically, what are you afraid would happen? Like if you didn't do your compulsion, what are you, what are you afraid would happen otherwise? Or what are you afraid could happen otherwise? And how would that affect you? And how would that make you feel? Moving on and to other articles that you've written on your website. Give us your website. What's your website? OCDassociates.com. And there's tons of information there. So if you're looking for more information, check out Michael there. Okay, so these fears can lead to avoidance and compulsions. Is that correct? Yes. But again, I wouldn't say it and I wouldn't talk about causality in that direction. It's not that having that fear is leading to the symptoms. The person has the symptoms for probably a variety of reasons, including probably also hereditary factors, but the the avoidance and compulsion are protective against the core fear. Those words, they're words we use. We know what they mean. I can visualize like avoiding the crack in a sidewalk or compulsion like counting. They seem like coping strategies to me. So why is that not a good thing? What characterizes OCD or characterizes a compulsion is a a person's subjective sense that they don't have control over something. So if someone is making a choice to do something, then they're not going to present for treatment because they feel like they're in control of it. So what, what the, the subjective experience of the person with OCD is that they don't want to be doing these things, but they can't stop themselves. And so they feel out of control. And it's also the case, like any psychopathology, one of the criteria is like it impairs functioning and causes distress, et cetera. So that's an important piece of what makes it a disorder. But I think in terms of OCD specifically, the real essential piece is that a person feels like they can't control this. If a person is choosing to do something as a coping strategy, that's not a compulsion. If a person is you know, doing something because it makes them feel calmer, that's not a compulsion. If a person feels like they don't have a choice but to do this thing, that's a compulsion. Rumination, what is it? Rumination is, generally speaking, analytical thinking. We use the word rumination to refer to analytical thinking that's compulsive. And going back to what I just said before, what makes it a compulsion or what makes it compulsive rumination is that a person feels like they don't have a choice. So for example, the person who has harm OCD, you know, when they, when they see the knife, they see the baby and they go, oh my God, like they have a, you know, a flash of terror and am I going to kill the baby? Then they might launch into trying to figure out if they would kill the baby, imagining killing the baby to check their response to that, thinking about any evidence that they would kill the baby, then reassuring themselves, no, I would never do it. So that's just an example of what rumination might look like. It's somebody trying to figure it out. Somebody's trying to solve the problem that's haunting them. Can it be helpful? The answer is that sometimes there is a constructive piece to rumination that has to be separated out. And sometimes there's nothing constructive about it. So for example, um, let's say somebody is ruminating about, to use a real example, like what next steps are professionally. And all day long, they're thinking about what they need to do to get to their next step professionally. There, what makes it compulsive is that the person doesn't want to be thinking about this all day, but they feel like they can't stop. But it might be the case that it would make sense to schedule time to think about this thing when you actually want to be thinking about it. Here's an example. If somebody has, if somebody is constantly ruminating about whether they have cancer, that is not constructive because they're not going to figure out whether they have cancer by thinking about it. There might be a purpose in separating out the constructive piece, which is maybe this person really does need to go get a get a checkup, or maybe they do feel the need to have an additional follow up. So you would separate out whatever the actual constructive thing is. What does the person actually want to do, and then take care of that. 
while eliminating the thing that is not constructive and more importantly, that the person doesn't want to be doing. The person doesn't want to be thinking about whether they have cancer all day. The person doesn't want to be constantly distracted from their life because they're thinking about professional next steps. Or there are times when it's totally not constructive. Like for example, somebody ruminating about whether they're in the right relationship, which is a common presentation that we call relationship OCD. That's just one type of relationship OCD. Somebody ruminating about whether they're in the right relationship, that's not constructive because there's no such thing as the right relationship. And so that doesn't even get off the ground. There's nothing that's ever going to be constructive about trying to answer that question. So we're having a conversation here where we're trying to understand something that's complicated. Are there people who can, because the next thing I want to get to is how do you stop ruminating? And are there people who can figure out how to cope with OCD without therapy? That's an interesting question. There, let's start with, there are many people who by hook or by crook have, have to figure out how to cope with OCD without therapy. If the question is, should anyone with OCD go to therapy? My answer is a clear yes. Anybody who has OCD should go to therapy. One of the steps that you identify is learning how to stop ruminating. Is there anything that you could tell our audience right now? Because I, when I was reading the articles, I thought, okay, I, how would I do that? So are there any tips that you could give us in this very short amount of time of what does it look like to stop ruminating? Well, I'll start with the fact that some people already know how to stop ruminating. These are not people with OCD, but if you've ever heard somebody say like, well, I don't like to think about that. I choose not to think about that. Somebody with OCD, when we hear somebody say that, we're like, what are you talking about? Like, what is this witchcraft? How does a person just make a choice not to think about something? We have no idea what that means. Truly no idea what that means. So some people already know how to stop ruminating. They realize that they have a choice about what to think about and what not to think about. The core component or the, the key piece is that rumination is analytical thinking. Or it also it can involve just directing attention. But in general, it's analytical thinking. Analytical thinking is controllable. And therefore, a person can stop it. What happens is that, like with any other compulsion, a person doesn't realize that they have a choice. They have a subjective experience that they can't stop thinking about this, when in reality, they're terrified to, think, to stop thinking about it. So we want to take somebody from, I can't stop doing this thing, to, I technically can, I'm just scared to stop. In other words, we want to restore their sense of agency. And for someone who literally doesn't know what it means to let a question exist without trying to solve it, we want to teach them how to do that. Tell me what to do to stop right now, or to not, if not stop, at least learn how to control it a little bit. I think the first question is whether we're dealing with a, an issue of technique or an issue of justification. So if there's someone who literally doesn't know how to do it, like what does it mean to put something to the side, then we need to teach them how to do that. And that's what the exercise is for. And that's on the website. And it's probably beyond the scope for today. For somebody who does know how to do that in certain situations, but just can't do it with something in particular, for that person, we want to look at their justifications. You could put this to the side, but there's some part of you that is justifying that you're figuring it out, that you need to figure it out right now. So this is the person who, let's say, doesn't have OCD in general, but is lying in bed at night, trying to figure out, they're worrying, they're trying to figure something out. It's not that they don't know how to put that to the side. It's that they think that they need to figure that out right now. And so for that person, the intervention would be to identify or to make conscious the justification, right? Why are you telling yourself that you need to figure this out right now? And then make a clear decision to put it to the side. An example of this that's not OCD is a couple of years ago, I was, somebody had said something very homophobic and I was lying in bed, like composing the email I wanted to write to that person. Of course, I couldn't sleep. 
And I said to myself, you know, Michael Greenberg, you're the person who knows exactly what's going on right now. You're ruminating. And so I had to make a decision. I had to own that I was simultaneously trying to do two mutually exclusive things. I was trying to compose an angry email and go to sleep. And so it's not that there's anything wrong with composing an angry email in your head. It's that you have to own that you're doing it, that you have a choice about whether you want to do it, and that if you do it, you're not going to be falling asleep right now. And then the decision about whether you want to decide, I'm not sleeping now, I want to do this, or whether you want to let this go and go to sleep, that's up to you. you know, that's a person's choice. But the key factor is recognizing that it's not that this isn't controllable. This is controllable. It's that you're not making a clear decision about whether you want to do this now or not. A person who has OCD is doing all sorts of compulsion and avoidance. Sometimes that compulsion is rumination, meaning they're thinking. But that's still a compulsion. They're still doing something to still be pretty clear. Basically, to sort of back up and reorganize a person who has OCD is doing all sorts of compulsion and avoidance. Sometimes that compulsion is rumination, meaning they're thinking. But that's still a compulsion. They're still doing something, but the behavior is mental. Just like doing a math problem is doing something, trying to figure out if you're a pedophile, trying to figure out if you're in the right relationship, trying to figure out if you're a murderer. Those are also doing something. You are trying to figure something out. It's just like washing your hands. It's just like doing a random ritual. It's just like checking the stove. It's something that you feel compelled to do because you're afraid of what would happen if you didn't do it. The reason it's important to focus on rumination is one, because people don't realize they're doing it. They think it's something that's not subject to their control. And two, because they might not even recognize, they might not recognize they're doing it and they might not know how to stop. Somebody who is washing their hands, they might feel like, like it's scary to stop, but they know that technically it's possible to take your hands away from the water. Somebody who's ruminating might not even recognize that that is possible. So ruminating is in your brain. What would be the word for action? They're all compulsions. I would differentiate just between physical compulsions and mental compulsions, but they're all compulsions. So the physical ones are easier to see that you could stop because eventually you're going to stop. You might still be terrified to stop, but you know that physically it's possible. You might be terrified to take your hands out from under the water, but you know it's possible to remove hands from water. Somebody who's ruminating, there's this extra piece, which is not only are they terrified to stop, they don't actually necessarily realize that it's even possible to stop. They might. A lot of people talk about OCD thoughts as if they're coming in from the outside, as if this is something that's happening to you and you have no control over it. An essential part of treatment is helping a person realize, no, this is not something that's happening to you. This is something that you're doing. The initial thought occurring to you is not something that you can control, but trying to solve it, trying to figure it out, which is 99% of the intrusive thoughts that people will describe, they're not really intrusive thoughts. They're really you doing analytical thinking, you sitting there trying to figure out how to solve this problem. Michael, what is ERP? ERP is, stands for Exposure with Response Prevention. It is a subtype or a specific type of CBT, which is Cognitive Behavioral Therapy. And it is the specific type of Cognitive Behavioral Therapy that's used for OCD. Okay, so we have this umbrella category of Cognitive Behavioral Therapy, which just means therapies that intervene on the level of conscious thought or cognition and behavior, okay? And that's in contrast to therapies that, for example, are psychodynamic, which means looking at emotions and unconscious emotional conflicts, right? That's, that's the distinction. I mean, there are other types of therapy also, but fine. And then within 
under the umbrella of cognitive behavioral therapy, there are different types of cognitive behavioral therapy for different disorders. The one that we use for OCD is called ERP, exposure response prevention. So for example, if somebody is afraid of touching something and then touching something else, so the exposure would be to touch the thing and then touch the other thing. Or if somebody, every time they see a knife, they start ruminating about whether they're going to kill someone, it would be to be around the knife without ruminating. Is there some order? Am I making that up in in my head? It seems like first we talked about core fear. Then there's this idea of trying to figure out how to control the rumination or at least let the person know that they can control that. And then there's ERP as an approach where you're kind of saying, okay, now we're ready for the next thing. I have a specific version of ERP called rumination-focused ERP that emphasizes the role of rumination and also emphasizes the role of case conceptualization and understanding the coherency of symptoms. People who do ERP in general and the wider world of ERP would not necessarily think about core fear, would not necessarily think about rumination. But within the approach that my practice uses, which again is called rumination-focused ERP, the steps are first to case conceptualization. Why is this person having the symptoms that they're having? What are the emotional factors and relationship factors that are leading to this? What is this person really afraid of? Only then moving on to the actual treatment, meaning first we want to know what are we looking at? Why is this happening? What is this really about? Then we teach people how to stop ruminating because we see that as like the cornerstone of the whole disorder that drives the anxiety. And only then moving on to exposure and doing exposure in the context of not ruminating. So doing the thing you're avoiding while refraining from ruminating, doing something that would trigger a compulsion, doing the trigger while refraining from ruminating. People conceptualize ERP in different ways, and that has an impact on how they do it. So traditionally, people thought that the way exposure worked was by desensitizing a person either to a stimulus or to anxiety itself. So the idea was that if you're afraid of something, then confronting that thing will eventually make you no longer afraid of it. To use the example of emetophobia, which is a fear of vomiting. So let's say somebody has emetophobia and therefore they don't eat sushi. Okay. So in a traditional ERP model that's focused on desensitization or habituation, the exposure might look like eating the sushi and then on purpose thinking about vomiting or watching videos about vomiting. Traditionally, it would be about confronting vomit, thinking about vomit, doing imaginal scripts, meaning imagining vomiting. The idea being that if a person's afraid of vomit, the more they think about vomit, the more they'll habituate to it and the less afraid they'll be. That's the traditional model. Okay. The way that exposure might work is eat sushi and think about vomiting, do an imaginal script about vomiting until you ideally desensitize to that fear. I don't believe that it's possible to habituate to anxiety. I think when a person is anxious or if they're anxious in an ongoing way, it's because there's a cognitive activity happening. In other words, the person is sitting there ruminating and trying to figure something out and that's why they're anxious a person's not going to stop being anxious until they stop doing that. So in other words, if somebody says, you know, my stomach is hurting because I keep eating candy bars, we're not going to say, well, keep eating more candy bars because then you'll get used to the feeling of your stomach hurting. So if you see the feeling as a consequence of the behavior, then habituation doesn't really make sense. From my perspective, that sees anxiety or ongoing anxiety as the consequence of a behavior, namely rumination, meaning compulsive analytical thinking, The solution isn't habituation. The solution is to learn how to control that compulsive analytical thinking. Rather than giving somebody sushi and having them ruminate, having them think actively about vomiting, 
I would want to give the person sushi while they're not thinking about vomiting. We're just going to pop it in. And then we're going to not ruminate about it afterwards. We're not going to think about whether we're nauseous. We're not going to monitor. We're not going to think about, you know, where the bathroom is or anything like that. We're just going to put it in and they keep on moving mentally. Yours is not the traditional method, but it's, you're seeing it work. We're in the process of starting clinical research on it now. So we know it works from anecdotally, from clinical experience. And we're at the very early stages of starting to research it clinically, which will take a while. But what I want to highlight is that even though both of these models that I've described are exposure, they look very different. And our model is much gentler. We don't need a person to sit there, you know, thinking about vomiting. We just need them to pop in the sushi and move on. So it's a much gentler approach to exposure. Traditional exposure requires people to do a lot of things that make them very anxious and very uncomfortable, like even touch a toilet seat and then lick their hands because the focus is on habituation. So you want a person to habituate to things that are whatever that gross them out. In our model, it's about restoring a person's agency and refraining from rumination. And so we would never have somebody do something that they don't want to do. You might have somebody do something they're scared to do if that's something that they want to do. You often hear clinicians in the traditional school of thought talking about, well, is this a compulsion? As if there's some objective definition. So for example, is it a compulsion to use a paper towel to open the door of the public restroom? In the traditional model that focuses on habituation, they would say, well, the person using the paper towel prevents them from being exposed to the thing that scares them which prevents them from habituating. And therefore, they need to not use the paper towel so they can do the thing that scares them so they can habituate. When you take habituation out of the picture, that doesn't make sense anymore. And so since my focus is on restoring a person's agency, I would say to the person, do you want to use a paper towel to open that door? Or do you feel like you don't have a choice? And if the person says, no, I I want to use a paper towel to open that door, then I would say that's completely fine. That's not a compulsion. If that's something that you want to do, that's not a problem. Our model is a much easier sell because rather than asking people to do things that they really don't want to do, we're asking people to think about what they really do want to do if they weren't terrified to do those things. So we're going to wrap up with the question we ask all of our guests, which is what is the biggest myth about treating teenagers with OCD? The biggest myth, I think probably not recognizing it for what it is, is a big problem. It's not exactly a myth, but the myth might be that OCD only looks like washing your hands or OCD only looks like checking locks or OCD looks like symmetry. So that's a myth, right? Uh, You can have somebody who doesn't do any physical compulsions. They're just sitting there stuck in their head. And that is OCD. So that I think is an important one. Potentially, you could have a parent who thinks the kid can just stop right? Or that they're doing it on purpose. That's a very dangerous, that is a very wrongheaded and dangerous approach because what ends up happening is you're just the person with OCD, even though we're saying that through treatment, they can learn to stop or they can learn that they have the ability to stop. That is not the subjective experience of somebody with OCD. And before treatment, they truly cannot stop. They are terrified and they can't stop any more than if you, if somebody had a gun to your head and said, uh, you know, do this thing or I'll shoot. Technically, you could stop doing the thing, but realistically, you couldn't really because you're so scared. That's the experience of somebody with OCD. And so even though it might look like, well, they could just stop, truly, they cannot. Getting angry at the kid because you feel helpless and you don't know what to do or because you're concerned and you feel like, I need to get them to stop doing this thing is extremely harmful. It's first of all, wrongheaded. It will not work. It often makes things worse. The myth would be that it's the kid's fault or that the kid could just stop. 
It's such a kinder, gentler, softer approach to parenting in general, but specifically if you have a kid with these symptoms. So Dr. Michael Greenberg, thank you so much for being here with us. Thanks for having me. Thanks for joining us for the Your Teen Podcast. If you have any topics that you want us to talk about, let us know on our Facebook page or email editor at yourteenmag.com. If you're someone who reads an article and thinks of that one friend who has to read it too, think of our podcast the same way. Please share with that friend who's going to say, oh my God, I can't believe I didn't know about Your Teen with Sue and Steph. And do us a favor and review and rate the show on the podcast platform of your choice. You can find more from us at yourteenmag.com at evergreenpodcast.com or anywhere you listen to podcasts. Your Team with Sue and Steph is a production of Evergreen Podcasts. Special thanks to executive producer Michael D'Aloya, plus producer Hannah Leach and audio engineer Eric Coltnow. We'll see you next time. in Holland, host of the Kennedy Dynasty podcast. Equipped with a microphone and a long-term fascination of the Kennedy family, I am joined by an incredible cast of experts, friends, and guests to take you on a fun, relaxed, yet informative journey through history and pop culture. From book references to fashion to philanthropy to our modern expectations of the presidency itself, you'll see that there is so much more to Kennedy than just JFK or conspiracy theories. Join me for the Kennedy Dynasty podcast.